you'll turn to your announcements. A lot going on this week. I'm not going to mention every single one. You guys just look at those. Um, Jessica has information on the women's group and the shower, so I'll let her talk. Next Sunday at 8:30 in the room. No, she's got one more Sunday. Two weeks. Two weeks. Two week notice. <laughs> You're fine. <five Notice that's May 5th through the 7th. Two weekends away. Okay. Um, are there any other Nothing else. We'll go with our morning praise scripture from Psalm 76. God 
is honored in Judah. His name is great in Israel. Jerusalem is where he lives. Mount Zion is his home. There he has broken the fury arrows of the enemy, the shields and swords and weapons of war. You are glorious and more magnificent than the everlasting mountains. Our boldest enemies have been plundered. They lie before us in the sleep of death. No warrior can lift a hand against us. At the blast of your breath, O God of Jacob, your horses and chariots lay still. No wonder you are greatly feared. Who can stand before you when you, your anger explodes? From heaven you sentenced your enemy. The earth trembled and stood silent before you. You stand to up to judge those who do evil, O God, and to rescue the oppressed of the earth. Human defiance only enhances your glory, for you use it as a weapon. Make vows to the Lord your God and keep them. Let everyone bring tribute to the awesome one, for he breaks the pride of princesses and the kings of the earth here. Now, if you'll stand, we will sing our opening. Six our faith with the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, 
and Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From this he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the Lord, and the life everlasting.
young ones. You guys can come on down with me. How's everybody doing? Good. You have a good weekend? I'm I'm gonna say something that I bet is true. Actually that I know without a doubt is true for each and every one of you. You ready? You came to church here this morning with your family. Is that right? Yes? How do I know that? Because you can't drive. Yep. <laughs> Maybe, but did you? <laughs> now, I bet that even... Now, I know you all all very well. But you know what? I bet that if I didn't know any of you, that I could look out at this room and pick out very specifically who your parents were. What do you think I'd have to look for? If I, let's pretend I didn't know you or your family at all. How do you think I'd be able to pick out who your moms and dads were? Okay, what would I what would I notice them? What would I notice about them? That they're grown up. But there's lots of grown ups out here. How would I know that that's your mom? Other than the fact that I married her. <laughs> yeah, Nora's red hair, right? I could look at, at Nora and then I could look at her mom and say, you know what? That's gotta be yours. Right? Because we, you look like your your moms or your dads, don't you? I bet I bet there's something about you. Yep, exactly. There's something about you that makes us think of your parents. It might be your eyes match the color of your dad's, or your hair matches the color of your mom's. But there's something about the way that you look that looks exactly like your mom and dad, right? Well, in Romans 8 this morning, we are talking about how we as Christians have been given the spirit of adoption. What does adoption mean? Okay, but what, what do they do when they adopt you? making you part of their family. So someone who is not part of your family becomes part of your family by adoption. And typically, well, always, adoption comes from a mom and a dad who adopt a child to become their son or daughter, even though they were not born their son or daughter. And the Bible says that we as Christians, we are not God's children. We are sinful and broken, and we don't do what he says. But God, by his grace and because of Jesus, adopts us into his family, and he calls us his sons and his daughters. And to end, the cool thing about adoption is that even though adopted kids don't look like their moms and dads because they weren't born of them, we too may not look physically like our father in heaven. But you know what happens through adoption? We begin to act like him. He begins to make us look and talk and act like he looks and talks and acts. And we, we do the things that he does, and we love the things that he loves, and we care about the things that he cares about. Yes. When God adopts you as his children, you become like him. You become his sons and his daughters. And that happens through Jesus. 
Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, God adopts us and calls us his children. So we're going to talk more about that here in a little bit, but that is a really cool thing about the gospel, that we are his children. You are sons and daughters of God if you believe in Jesus. Isn't that cool? Let me pray for you. God, we're thankful for these, these young ones and thankful for the ways that, that you are working and teaching them. And God, we do pray for their adoption as, as your children. We pray that you would instill faith in each one of these precious hearts and that they would come to know you as Father. And that you would love them and pour your grace out into them. Uh, help us as we continue in worship this morning. Be glorified among your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. children are going back to their seats, Jill Stan will sing Amazing Grace 422. I'm sorry, 420, Jesus, because they thought of
standard Bibles, I invite you to grab them. Grab a blue one on the end of your pew or maybe a, an app on a device to brought with you. Whatever you prefer, grab a Bible so we can see and read God's Word together this morning. Uh, we will be in Romans chapter 8, begin this morning. This is one of those, one of those chapters within this uh, series. And, and maybe if, you, if you've been with us for a while now and, and have heard, heard my preaching style or, or the way that we move through books, inevitably it never fails that when we hit a certain chapter, a certain point in each one of our books, it just jumps off the page, and we, we, we slow down our study, we sit deeply and meditate deeply on the truth of this passage, and we just sit. In Romans 8, there's, there's no greater chapter for us in the book of Romans to slow down and to sit in and just read and reread and read again as we study God's Word together. So we've been in Romans 8 now for uh, about three weeks. And this morning we are looking specifically at verses uh, 14 through 17. Uh, but what I want to do is read you going all the way back to verse 1 of chapter 8. Because it's connected, it's contextual, it's for your good. And it's something for us to read and celebrate together. So let me read to you God's word. This is beginning in Romans 8, chapter, or excuse me, verse 1. Paul writes, There is therefore now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified 
with you. Grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of the Lord, this word, stands forever. Pray with me. been here in Romans 8 for uh, several weeks now, I thought it might be helpful to give sort of a, a brief recap of, of what I've just read and kind of what we've seen so far, because I, I believe it will help us understand the passage, the verses that we are zeroing in on a little bit more in detail today. Uh, in our, our first week here in this study, it was Palm Sunday, and I, I brought to your attention that this entire chapter, this entire eighth chapter of Romans is really about one theme. And that theme is assurance. This is a chapter without command. It is without imperative. It is nowhere you find in this chapter Paul telling us, you must or you can't. It is simply a chapter of you are. These are the assurances that we are, are given in Christ. And so we began that first week with an assurance of salvation. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That both today and forever, you never have to worry about God punishing or condemning or judging ever again. Because God has already condemned your sin in the flesh of Christ. It's been dealt with. It's been judged. It's been condemned. And it does not need to be condemned again. On Easter Sunday, we looked at the assurance of life that the Spirit who that the Spirit gives us, that He brings to those who are in Christ Jesus. The same Spirit that, that raised Jesus from the dead is the Spirit that now dwells within you, believers. And He gives life to you today, and He will one day give life to your mortal body. That even though you die, Christ, the same, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, will also raise you from the dead. And then lastly, we did, last week we took a, a brief pause out of this assurance discussion. Because I wanted to, to zero in and focus heavily on verses 12 and 13. What it means for us as believers to live by the Spirit. And here with us, I, I reference John Owen's famous words. That we are, as Christians, to be killing sin, or sin will be killing us. And so we, we focus on putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. Now this morning, as, as the passage of Paul continues, we, we build on this, on this idea of assurance. We, I, I want you to see this morning, you can see the, the title of the sermon in the bulletin, it is this assurance of belonging. And as Christians, you are not on your own. As Christians, God does not save you and then say, best of luck to you, hope to see you at the finish line. But when He saves you, He adopts you. When he saves you, he calls you his child. And as a child that comes with certain rights and privileges and blessings that only a child can play. 
that you are not just a believer, that you are not just a Christian, that you are not just an individual, but you have now a family, that you now can belong in the house of God. Because He brought you in all you And as we're walking through this passage, but what I want you to see, there's really sort of, if we imagine this passage like a, a garden walkway, there are really three stepping stones of this passage that we can guide us through our discussion this morning. And so the three stepping stones are simply three phrases. First is led by the Spirit. Second is uh, adoption as sons. And third, it is heirs of God. These three stepping stones will sort of guide and and frame our our sermon this morning, how we approach this passage. So let's just take them one by one, one step at a time. First stepping stone is led by the Spirit. It's a phrase that, that you probably have heard before, may even hear often from believers. And we, we often think of, of this phrase to be led by the Spirit. And maybe you've heard someone, I, I really felt the Spirit leading me to tell you this. Or I really felt the Spirit leading me to give you this or to do this for you. But we talk about this all the time, the Spirit leading us and, and guiding us. I do believe the Spirit can and does work in that way to lead to people like that at times. But I do not believe that that's what Paul has in mind when he says, for all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. And here's why. Yeah, I believe the Holy Spirit is by far the most misunderstood person of the Trinity. And he is one of the most overcomplicated most subjective doctrines of biblical truth. We have taken the person of the Spirit, the, the, the same God as the Father and the Son, and we have reduced Him to a feeling. Christians, hear me on the Goosebumps are not the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you've ever felt that or, or have, have needed to be told that, but Goosebumps, that feeling of, of closeness, the hair rising on the back of your neck, that is not the Holy Spirit. He is more than goosebumps. See, for the longest time, I believe that to be true. I believe that feeling that you get, those, those tingles you get at certain points in your life, that that was the Spirit moving. And, and I, can, I can remember for the longest time, I, I was in middle school at the time and, and had, a, had a teacher, a math teacher, who I went to a Christian school and she was responsible for our, our chapel on, on Wednesdays. And she not. Every Wednesday morning, we had chapel at, at 10.30, and every Wednesday morning at 8 o'clock, she turned down the AC in the room where we had chapel just so people would get cold and would get goosebumps because then they might feel that that was the spirit moving in among them. And I, I, as a middle school child, remember thinking, like, absolutely, I felt goosebumps in chapel today. Whew, spirit was moving. See, when, we, when we believe that the spirit is this feeling, this goosebumps, whatever, whatever feeling comes with it, what happens is we'll pursue that feeling over and above. We will pursue feeling over track. We will pursue our subjective experience of worship over biblical truth in worship. 
worship then becomes something that you must feel on a Sunday morning. That if you come to church and you leave not feeling a certain way, then you have not yet worshipped. Worship is not some, then becomes not something you must know or believe. Worship is, then becomes not truth that is proclaimed. Worship becomes how I felt at the end of the day. Or at the end of the day. See, when we pursue a feeling and we call it the Spirit, we then twist everything about our time together here on Sunday morning. We contort ourselves to make sure that we get that feeling before we leave here. Then, then, in a worst case scenario, as, as a pastor, then my job is not to complain to you truth. My job is not to proclaim to you what God's word says. My job is to make sure that you feel, that you feel a certain way before the service. Do you know how dangerous that is? That's what we believe How how exposed we we are to manipulation to abuse, to lie. When we are pursuing a feeling of the truth, because then anyone can stand up here before you and not give you what you need, not give you biblical truth, not proclaim to you the mysteries of the gospel of Jesus, but simply tug at the heartstrings in just the right way, so then that check will get a little bit bigger. So then that those pews will get a little bit fuller. And that as long as I keep pulling on those heartstrings, and as long as I keep making you get those goosebumps, then we will be a worshipful church, despite the fact that no truth is ever proclaimed. Feelings can be manipulated, they can be twisted, they can be supported, used to whatever ends the people controlling them want you to go. But hear me on this. Before we really even dive into Paul's writings, Hear me on this. The Spirit is God. He is not Gustav. You see, what Paul has in mind as he's writing these verses, as he's writing the verses 14 through 17, they are filled with allusions, with images of the Exodus in Egypt. And there's so many similarities and comparisons to be made of what Paul is trying to point to. So if we want to understand what he means by led by the Spirit, we, we need to go back to the Exodus first. And you may remember, but if not, allow me to help jog your memory. In the book of Exodus and in the book of Numbers, we, we see the story of how God saved Israel from slavery in Egypt. We, we see the, the, the ten plagues, the Passover, the ten commandments, the miracles of, of manna and water from the rock, this this following through the, the wilderness to the promised land. All of it. I mean, if you were to make a, a greatest hits album of the Old Testament, you would spend eight out of the ten greatest hits in these two books of Exodus and Numbers. They're there. It's what it's about. It's what defines the Old Testament people of God. And as Israel left Egypt, God had promised to bring them to their promised inheritance, the promised land of Canaan, where they would reside and that He would be with them as their God and they would be His people. But in the days before GPS and the days before Waze, God's people didn't have maps to know how to get to Canaan from Egypt. And so instead, God promised to not let them figure it out on their own, but that He would use them. 
that he would take them by the hand and go before them and show them where they were to walk and where they were to go. It says in Exodus that God was afraid that if they went to the land of the Philistines, that they would see war and be afraid and run back to them. So instead, God sends a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night to lead them through safe pathways. Surely this is what God does. He leads. That's what Paul has in mind when he says, you are led by the Spirit. It is God leading, directing your steps, guiding your path, saying, go this way. And that doesn't always happen in audible voices. It doesn't always happen in, in, in be generous or speak to this person or go to this place. But what Paul has in mind is not special instances of the Spirit's but in every day, all of life, for the rest of your life, all-encompassing guidance and leadership and authority over your life, given to the Spirit. If you belong to the people of God, then one, then one defining characteristic of your life is God leads you as He led you. And you follow wherever He goes. I mean, can you imagine how foolish it would have been for Israel to see the pillar of fire in the night leading and going forward and Israel saying, no, nah, I'm going to go this way. It would make absolutely no sense. There's danger that way. There's unknowns that way. There's darkness that way. God is leading you by fire through the night for you to follow Him. Follow Him. Follow Him. God has given you His presence better than a pillar of cloud, better than a pillar of fire, but it is His, his presence, His Spirit dwelling within you. Directing, guiding, transforming. Before you go outside today and see that cloud, before you're walking around in the woods at night waiting for the pillar of fire to show up and trace the way back, by the Spirit means that your entire life is subjected to and submitted to the Spirit of God who grows in you. And I'm just going to put it a guiding thought to speak to someone about Jesus, to give money to help the needy, to give encouragement to someone that, that is around you, to do something kind and thoughtful. At times, yes, that's how the Spirit is. But most of the time, this led by the Spirit to all the to. It looks like everything that Paul has already described. I mean, just go back with me. Turn the page back. Go back to verse 1. Walk through this passage and look at the things the Spirit does. This is what it means to be led by the Spirit. Verse 2. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. This is what he does. He sets you free from sin and death. Verse 5 and 6. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on things of the flesh. For those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on things of the Spirit. So, the second thing the Spirit does, if you leave you, is by setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. And what comes as a result is verse 6. 
to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life. Verse uh, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If you have the spirit of Christ, you belong to him. He is a part of you. You are a part of him. You are his. Verse 10. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. The spirit dwelling within you, leading you, brings you life, even though your body is wasted away because of sin, because of death. The spirit leading you, gives you, and leads you into life and righteousness. Verse 11. And then verse 13, which we looked at last week. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You see how the Spirit leads you? He leads you to believe the gospel first. That you from all to embrace the fact that there is now, therefore, no condemnation. Freedom from judgment, freedom from wrath, freedom from oppression at the hands of a God who despises sin and will judge all sin. Because in Christ, your sin has already been condemned. The Spirit is the one who applies that and reminds it to you. The Spirit is the one who then takes your sinful, broken body and puts it to death daily. As you fight sin and resist sin, he is the one who burns up the roots of sin from within. This is what it means to be led by the Spirit. Not to wait for audible voices, not to wait, not to wait for feelings, but to live in obedience to the gospel of Christ, to live in obedience to what Paul has written. To embrace the teachings of Roman Jesus and say, yes, this is the Spirit of Remind me of this. Teach me this more and more every day. Reveal sin to me and remove it from my life. Help me to live in a way that honors you. Help me to live in a way that is life, truly life. Give me peace, Spirit. Set me free, Spirit. Leave me, Spirit. All of this is what it means to be led by the Spirit of God because this is what the Spirit does in your life. And the beautiful thing about this, as we leave this first stepping stone and step into the next one, the beautiful thing about this is that being led by the Spirit has a profound implication for all who are led by the Spirit. Like this. All who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. That's the second thing, the second step stone. This is what you must know about yourself. If you are led by the Spirit, you, believer, are a child of God. Let me, let me first, as we spend some time here on the seventh stone, let me first bring understanding to the, the term in verse 14, sons, and why it is written. Why doesn't Paul say sons and daughters? Why does he only say sons? Is he only speaking to male believers? Paul is not speaking only to the males in the room when he says that if you are led by the Spirit of God, that you are sons of God. He is speaking to the entire church, both men and women. And he uses two different words in this passage. He uses sons in verse 14, and then children in 15 and 17. Be assured, first off, that he is speaking to everyone in the church, 
chapter in verse 29. He says, For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. You see, we may, we may talk a lot about the, the transformation of life and, uh, and how, as believers, you are not who you once were. And a lot of our discussions and talks about transformation is this looking back into the past and saying, I remember my sin. I remember where I was. I remember who I used to be. Praise God, I am not that anymore. But it's our transformation, our discussion on transformation, only ever looks backwards. We're missing the beauty of what God is doing. Because transformation has an end goal. It is moving somewhere. You are becoming something specific. You are being transformed into the image of the Son of God. As such, you, believer, are the Son of God. You are His child. And He is transforming you. As He has declared you His child, He is making you look like Him. He is making you look like Him. Now let me show you three, three ways that we, the three reasons this matters. Why does it matter if you understand if you are a child of God, if you are a son or a daughter? First, our class starts on children's stories. Children look and act like they're children. Okay. And we, we, don't, we don't have to go very deep into this for you to see this. I, I remember when Eddie was born. And my, my firstborn son, my firstborn child, I was overwhelmed and anxious but excited because there he was. And for the first few really weak months of his life, it was hard to see me in that place. And he just didn't look like him. He looked like his grandfather. He looked like Paige's dad. And, and while I was thrilled and excited, uh, he's definitely one of us. He looked like somebody in the room. He like you know what I mean? And the, the irony of that is, as you all know well, well and clear, I cannot deny that boy if I wanted to. 
right? Like we we could be at the ball field and I could be talking to another parent and she can be be asking, well, which one is yours? Oh, never mind, found it. Like there he is. Make no mistake. And if you get to talk to Eddie and, and, and be around him, you'll begin to see that he not only looks like me, but he acts like me. Talks like me. He responds to things like me. Whether good or bad, there's, there is me in the child. And he's going to be great privileges. Does that same dynamic that my son looks like his father? You, child of God, look at that. The same for you. As sons and daughters of God, in a very real sense, believer, you look, you act, you live, and you imitate your heavenly father. You see, in some ways, it's things that we just cannot help. It's things that we do almost second nature. It comes out naturally. The way, the way that a child's laugh almost mimics their parents. So we naturally mimic our father. Some of you are kind and hospitable and generous in ways that require almost no thought or effort from you. That's your father. Some of you are, 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 are encouraging and loving or, or maybe you strive in leading people well. And you don't have to think about it. It just happens because that's just who you are. That is your Father coming out to you. Did you get it from But other habits and behaviors are learned, just like our children learn. You help those in need because you know that the Father helps you when you learn. You bend down low to serve others because you how he does it when you learn to speak. You speak a kind or encouraging word. Maybe you can speak a stern or a warning word. Confronting, a confronting word in love to warn someone of the dangers of sin because you your father do the same for you. You've heard the father speak. You've seen the father act. So you to be like him. Whether it's natural or learned, children of God look and act like Second, children have all the legal rights of belonging to the Father. Children have all the legal rights of belonging to the Father. You see, a, a very beautiful, almost poetic word choice. Paul uses the concept of adoption. It's not the first time he's used this language. It won't be the last either. But adoption might be my favorite thing See, the Roman world was very familiar with adoption. It's a common practice, much like it is today. But consider just for a moment what adoption is. Just like we ask our children. When you adopt someone, you are legally declaring that this child, who does not biologically belong to you, is now here and has all of the legal standing, all of the rights and privileges of being your biological child. You are not the biological son. You were not born to be. You were born in You were born in 
who are born broken, rebellious, wicked, and evil. And yet, your heavenly Father has come to pull you out of the out of the ditch that you found you, and has brought you to me and declared to you, you are not here as a slave, you are not here as an employee, you are not here for a limited time. As my child, you now have all the right to be able to be the same as a child of God. The world, the law, the court, anything will forever look at you as a All of his possessions and all of his kingdoms. This is all mine. And because you are my child, it is now Paul drives home this point in, in, in verse 15. He, he drives home it by, by, by using this comparison between a son and a slave. And he says, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as son. God doesn't bring you into his house to work off your debt. That's not adoption. That's employing you for your He doesn't say, I'll feed you and I'll give you a roof over your head, but you're going to pay me back for it. Nope. You are not a slave. Slaves fear their master. Slaves fear judgment. Slaves fear punishment when they make mistakes. Sons are not. Sons no matter what that son does. There is nothing that a child can do to make them no longer their parents' child. I have this conversation often with my own There is nothing you can do, whether good or bad, that will ever make you child. That's what God says to you. There is nothing you can do, whether good or bad, that will ever make you not you will forever be my son, my daughter. And it's funny because, you know, as a, as a parent, I never really thought that that would have to be a conversation that I needed to have, especially one that I needed to repeat. Telling your children that there's nothing you can do that will make, you, that will make me love you less. And there's nothing you can do that will make me love you more. My love for you is my love for you. You are mine. So often, even as believers, we return to the Father and we, we fear His love change. I don't know that He's going to love me so Today was a really good day. Maybe God's going to love me even before He did all this great stuff. The beauty of the parent child relationship is that there is no action to change or fluctuate the parent's love for it's what it is. It's a love. It does not change. It only grows. But it does not grow based on performance. It grows based on relationship and time spent in that relationship. Because we so often as Christians live as if we live in God's house as if we live. I'm here, but I've got a destiny. 
So I'm working it off as we go along. I'm serving. I'm cleaning. I'm, I'm doing whatever needs to be done because God has hired me and he's brought me into his house to do just that. And as long as I keep going and as long as I keep doing, he won't kick me out. And I'll be okay. For us that the day will come when God will be done putting up with me and my faith. And he's going to kick me out. And I'll be back in that ditch in the Christian, you are not a slave of God. You are a son. You are a daughter. And you need to hear the Father's word to you. There is nothing you can do, whether good or bad, to change the fact that you are his. You will forever be his child, not because you were born into it, not because but not because you have earned it, but because you have been adopted into it. He chose to bring you in, to call you his, and forever forever his you will be. Third. Third reality, third proof that this relationship with that we are children of God. Children have intimacy with their father. Children have closeness with their father. I've been called a, a lot of names in my life, some repeatable, some not so much. But the one name that I've been called that hangs above all of the others, Dad. Not, not Dad, not Father, not Pop, Dad. That's a term of endearment that you just don't throw away. Not everyone calls you that, either. I mean, whether, whether you're a parent or not, you are a child of someone, and there's a, a, at some point in your life you have used that word to describe someone, to call for someone. And they may still be a part of your life, they may not be. But you know the power and the impact of that word, daddy. Because you, can, you don't just call anyone daddy, because it's not a name you throw around. It's a term of endearment, of affection, of love. You can say it with a smile on your face to show your love of your father. You can say it when you're hurt and you need help. And so you cry it out. You can say it when you're just having a bad day and you need a hug. But I do believe that each of us can relate to the power and the beauty of either saying or hearing that name, Daddy. Look at verse 15. Paul says, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That word, Abba, is a term of a term of intimacy, a term of endearment. It is a name that only sons and daughters use of their father because it means daddy or Papa. See, because you are his son, because you are his daughter, you have this intimate, close relationship with the father that you didn't have. But because he has adopted you and because he has brought you in, not as a slave, but as a child, you have the right and privilege and blessing of looking at the God of the universe, the Alpha and the Omega, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. You have the privilege of standing before him and saying, Tim Keller writes, I have shared this with a few of you before. He says, the only person who dares to wake a king up at 3 a.m. and ask for a glass of water is a child. You have that kind of access. 
Christian, who you are is important. And we've talked about that before here. Who you are matters. But the single most defining aspect of your life is not who you are, but who you are. Who you belong to. You are his son. You are his daughter. And you can call on him for anything and everything. You can sit in his lap and ask for nothing. You can call him daddy. You can call him papa. Because that's who he is. It doesn't matter what you do or what you need or what trouble you get yourself into. Your father will always be there because you will always be his. He has adopted you and embraced you. And nothing you do can ever change it. You are his child if you are led by his spirit. Third, quickly, last step to heirs. Heirs of God. You see, while children have this great privilege and this intimacy today, there is also a future element that comes with being a child. The reason why adoption mattered so much in Roman society was that by adopting someone, you were guaranteeing them as share in your inheritance. Now, I may not have much when I die, but I can promise you one thing, that whatever I do have will go to my kids, as I'm sure it is in your family. Whatever you have will eventually pass down to your children through inheritance. Children aren't just children for a time and then they stop being children. Children are always children. And as such, children will one day receive everything their father has. Everything. You need to see this believer because you're not just a child of a random heavenly father. You are a child of the king. Which means that one day, all that belongs to the king will belong to you. His kingdom will be yours. His authority will be yours. His throne will be yours. And this is possibly the one truth of Romans 8 that is the hardest for us to grasp, the hardest for us to accept as true. No condemnation? Absolutely. That's wonderful and I embrace it. Adopted? Yes. And amen. Praise God. Forgiven and transformed? Hallelujah. Heir to the throne of God? Wait a minute. I don't know that I'm quite worthy to sit on that. And you're not. Christian, you, you are a child of the king, which guarantees you an inheritance from the Father. All that the Father has belongs to his children, and that includes you. Paul doesn't mince words here. He says you are a fellow heir, a co-heir with Christ. Christ is the son of the king, and he's going to inherit the kingdom. You are his brother, are his sister. And all that will come to him will also come to you. Next week, we'll, we'll discuss more on the details of this future inheritance. But, but I need you to see this. That you believer will inherit the world. It will be given to you because it was promised to Abraham. And you are his offspring if you believe. You see that in Romans 4, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. It did not come through the law, but it came through faith. You, believer, will inherit the king himself. The single greatest blessings of being a child of the king, of your inheritance, is in, is found in Revelation 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. This is the capstone promise of both the Old and the New Testament. Your inheritance, more than anything else, your inheritance is the king himself.
you have it. And the Spirit who dwells within you, believer, is a foretaste of that promise. It is a saint. The day will come when you will receive your inheritance as his child, and the greatest component of that inheritance is God. The best part about this is that in that inheritance, you will receive new, resurrected, immortal bodies. What benefit does an eternal inheritance bring you if you are not around to enjoy God has promised to raise you from the dead to give you an immortal body in, through which you can enjoy Him and enjoy His kingdom and His inheritance. That's what it means to be heirs. So let's just land the plane. Being led by the Spirit means being ruled in every aspect of your life by the Spirit of God. He guides, He instructs, He conforms, He teaches, He puts to death the deeds of the body. If you are led by the Spirit of God, believer, then you are a son, you are a daughter of God. You've been adopted, you look and act like Him, and you have this new, intimate, and close relationship with God that you can call Him You are a child of God, and you are an heir. And your inheritance is waiting. Let me ask, as we is this true? Are you led by the Spirit of God? Because that's ultimately where this all comes from. If you're not led by the Spirit of God, then you're not a son of God. And if you're not a son of God, then you're not an heir of God. But where it hangs is if you are led by the Spirit of God. If you belong to Christ, if you believe in Christ, if you trust in the gospel, then you are led by the Spirit. But if not, then that invitation is open to you. Here and now, it is open. Believe, be saved, be led, be called a child of the King, and wait for your inheritance. Christian, there is a great joy in being a child of God. Let's live in a way that the world looks at us and says, I know who you Live like children of God. Such a world. Pray with me. God bless us. Help us, Father. to live as your children for as what you have made us. You've adopted us by your grace. You've given us an inheritance that we wait for with eager anticipation. Help us to be led by the Spirit. Help us to live in ways that bring honor to our Father. Help us wait for our In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, Ron is at the back if you need communion. Um, this this morning, church, as we as we come to the table, we come thinking of what's been done in the past, looking forward to what's coming in the future. Uh, if you need the elements, just raise your hand and Ron, Ron will bring it to you. But let me just encourage you here in this moment. Christian, this 
meal that we gather around every Sunday is a foretaste. Surely none of us looks at this and goes, I don't need lunch after this. But it is a sampling. It is a foretaste of the feast to come. And so as we gather around this table, we gather in the name of our Savior who has died for us, who has bled for us, who has been condemned for us, for our sins. We rejoice and celebrate. This is how you have been brought in and adopted. The body of Christ broken to And in the cup. The cup is the reminder of the inheritance waiting for us. It's there. It's waiting. Just like every inheritance, we wait. We wait for the time to come when it will be time. Come quickly, Lord let's sing one one final hymn this morning before we leave before we dismiss it is hymn 426 blessed assurance please stand and sing every service, church, we do this saying the Great Commission. Because the Great Commission is just that. It is going and find those whom Christ has died for and purchased their forgiveness and telling them you are a son, you are a daughter of the King. Go and do it. 
Say the Great Commission aloud with me this morning. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go in grace.